So, like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, um, we're moving through Christology and specifically doing an introduction to Christology. Um, and today, dealing with specifically the witness of the Old and New Testament to Christ. First, we'll look at uh, Luke 24 um, and just consider Christ on the road to Emmaus in this discussion he has with Cleopas and another disciple. So we New Testament Christians, as those who have a closed and complete canon of scripture, often find ourselves scoffing at the ignorance of, of Jesus' apostles, those 12 that had Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, right before their eyes and did not recognize him. After the death of Christ, the apostles felt deep disappointment at what seemed to be the defeat of the very one who was to restore the kingdom of God in Israel. So death would definitely disqualify him from fulfilling that mission. But the apostles seemed to miss the major theme of suffering, the suffering of the promised Messiah. He first had to suffer and only then enter into his glory, Luke 24, 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It's the cross and then the crown. As Douglas Kelly says, the messianic expectations of that time, even among the disciples, had grasped only one side of the scriptural truth about the Messiah, the true king of the kingdom. And what was that scriptural truth? Before he was manifested as the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5.5, he must first fulfill his office as the suffering lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world as John the Baptist had announced at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry upon the baptism of the Jordan River. So this is not a New Testament concept. Uh, this Christ who is to suffer, this is, it's not new, it's not novel. Uh, but we see this all throughout the Old Testament. So you remember the uh, risen Christ who had not yet revealed his identity to Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus. In the beginning, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 40, 24, 27. So this seems to indicate that he took them through the entire Old Testament canon in order to show them how his incarnate life, suffering, death, and glorious physical resurrection were already set forth by Moses and the other inspired writers. So from the beginning, God's purposes set forth in scripture. So Christ speaking of his ministry and the purpose for which he came started in the Old Testament. So we would do well to do the same as Christ did. Speaking of himself, he started from the Old Testament and on through there. <clears throat> so looking at uh, the, the Old Testament and the, the New Testament and how they sort of uh, connect on Christ. We're going to look specifically at Christ as agent of creation. Christ as agent of creation. So let's go back to the beginning and look at Christ as the agent of creation. So John 1.3. Let's, anyone care to read that for us? Can you see it? John 1.3. <clears throat> 
Let me see. Thank you. So this indicates that Christ, the son of the father, was the very agent of creation. And then Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Anyone take a look at it and read it for us. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Thank you. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. <clears throat> Hebrews 2, I'm sorry, chapter 1, um, verse 2 and 10 tells us that in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also who he created the world. And uh, verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Revelation 4.11 summarizes the entire history of the cosmos in terms of the pleasure of the incarnate Lord. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We're still talking about Christ, okay? So Christ is active in creation. See if I can get my iPad working here. <clears throat> okay. So from the very beginning of the Bible, we see God the Father speaking. And God said, the constant theme throughout those first few chapters in Genesis. And God said, and God said, and God said. God is speaking. He's speaking what? He's speaking the word, logos, right? <clears throat> John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the word, logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, we're still talking about Christ, word, logos. <clears throat> Christ is the logos spoken at the origin of creation. And the breath of the Almighty, the Spirit, is there hovering over the face of the deep. Church fathers, uh, medieval Christian scholars, and later reformers argued similarly for a Trinitarian reference and the consultative form of the verb, let us make, immediately prior to the creation of mankind and the divine image. In Genesis 1, 26, we see this. Let us make man in our image. So as far back as the second century, we see discussion in the church on this matter. So the biblically grounded concept of the triune God has a long history in the church. God the Father, God the Son, who we're emphasizing in this study, and God the Holy Spirit were all active in creation, okay? So we have a, we should have a uh, triune Godhead picture of creation. Salvation as well, 
but also in, in creation. So why do you think it's important that we understand that the incarnate son or Christ is not a, a New Testament concept? Why, why is it important to understand that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to and looked forward to this coming Messiah? What, what does that matter for us as, as Christians? What are you guys' thoughts on that? Absolutely. So Christ is the hinge on which all of the cosmos in human history turns. Yes, so the Old, Test Old Testament saints look forward, we look back to the same, the same Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on that? Yes. Yes. Right, right. 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 Absolutely. You almost took the words from my notes at the towards the end of the class. We're going to talk about that. God, it was, he was not surprised, and he's purpose to set forth his son as a propitiation for sin from eternity past. So that does give us hope and encouragement, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, any other thoughts before we transition to our next segment here? Right. Right. Good. That's good. That's good. Absolutely. That's good. So it's faithfulness in the past encourages us that he'll be faithful in the future. Yep. God did what he said he would do, and he will do what he said that he would do. So good stuff. That's, that's really encouraging. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's transition to uh, the two Adams uh, picture that we see in, in Scripture. So the Old Testament sets forth Adam as head of the human race. We see that in Genesis 1, 27, 28, uh, Genesis 2, 18, 25, and Hosea 6, 7, if one translates Adam as a specific person rather than rendering it as the generic mankind. So Genesis 3 makes clear that all our true problems, alienation from God and from one another, death and judgment, go back to our first father's original sin, Genesis 3, 6 to 20. You read that narrative, you see um, Adam uh, sinning against the Lord and choosing for himself what is right and what is wrong. So there is not one person who has ever lived or ever will live who is not affected by their union with Adam. All are in Adam. Right? So we've, we've heard this term sort of coined in church history having Adam as our federal head, so our representative for humanity. 
So on a basketball team, even if you never play in the game, when your team wins that championship, you get a ring. If you never play in the game and your team loses, you lose, right? So those men on the court represent the whole of the team as Adam represents the whole of humanity. We are in Adam by nature. It's common for us to identify ourselves by our career, our job title, our ethnicity, the place we were born. So if, if someone were to ask you, well, who are you? How would you answer? Most of us would answer something like, well, my name is John and I'm a sales consultant. Or my name is Cindy and I'm from Oklahoma, right? It's just common for us to, to speak that way. But if we are truly to understand our identity, the question is not so much who we are, but whose we are. We are either in Christ or in Adam. This is our primary <clears throat> identity issue. And once we address <clears throat> this, all other things will be seen through the proper lens, either in Christ or in Adam. <clears throat> so this Adamic theme is taken up particularly by the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 12 to 22. Let's take a look at that. <clears throat> it's going to be important for us to see. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. 12 to 21. <clears throat> Excuse me. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. <clears throat> we have someone read verses 12 to um, 15, and then someone verses 16 to 21. So Romans 5, verses 12 to 15 first. Would anyone care to read that? Amanda, thank you. <clears throat> And then 16 to 21, anyone can take that up for us? Thank you. So you see how 
the Apostle Paul sort of, he, he lays out this picture of this Adam, new Adam. First Adam, last Adam. Adam, Jesus. And this, this terminology he uses, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Right? So he just lays, he just back and forth, back and forth. What, what Christ has did over and above what Adam has done. Right? <clears throat> we also see this theme in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22 and 44 to 49. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he presents Christ as the last Adam who recapitulates or recaps the fallen person and work of the first Adam. The first Adam is a type. The last Adam is the antitype. And the last Adam is the one to whom the first Adam points. The history of the first Adam is set forth solely as a pointer to make much of the last Adam. Right? So God working out his purposes in history. Adam doesn't stand alone. Adam stands <clears throat> as a pointer to something greater. Adam fails. The last Adam comes and succeeds. Adam disobeys. The last Adam comes and obeys. Um, Adam has earned for us death and condemnation. The last Adam earns for us life and righteousness and justification. <clears throat> Romans 5.17. Someone care to read that for us? Romans 5.17. <clears throat> i go ahead and read it. <clears throat> so I want to highlight this anyway. So Romans 5.17. For if because the one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So this isn't by accident that you see Paul laying this out this way. He's intending to communicate something about Jesus over and above Adam. Right? The last Adam and the first Adam. <clears throat> and then 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Over and over and over, you see Paul emphasizing uh, the, the beauty, the redemption, and the last Adam over and above the first Adam. Dunn points out, how Hebrews presents a classic treatment of, Ad, of Adam Christology in Hebrews 2, 6 to 18. Christ as the one in whom God's original plan, listen to this, this is, this is important. It's sort of weighty, but it, it's important. Christ as the one in whom God's original plan for man finally or eschatologically came to fulfillment. That is, in Christ, the exalted suffering one, the last Adam. So you, you, you see what he's, he's saying there? God's intention for humanity and obedience is found in 
Christ. So Christ is the picture of obedience. The first Adam fell. The last Adam succeeded. Thank you so much, baby. I appreciate it. Thank you. Christ as the one in whom God's original plan for man finally came to fulfillment. That's that's huge. The comparison and contrast between the two Adams is a soteriological or salvific sense was explored more fully by the great second century theologian Irenaeus of Lyon. That by him and, and others. Irenaeus says that as the first Adam led the human race astray, so the word comes as the last Adam to bring it back to true flesh, I'm sorry, to to bring it back to God. He really echoes Hebrews 2.14 when he says, he, Christ, had to be true flesh because it was Adam, a fleshly being, who had sinned and whose race needed redemption. Christ had to be true flesh because it was Adam, a fleshly being, who had sinned, whose race needed redemption. Adam earns for us, excuse me, sin and death and condemnation and alienation from our creator. Christ merits for those who are in him obedience and life, acquittal, pardon, forgiveness, redemption, and justification. As Adam's sin put an impenetrable veil that men by their good works tried to ascend to climb over, so Christ in his perfect obedience and suffering tears down the veil that held sinful men at bay. And Christ, we can now enter the holy place, that presence of God that Adam was banned from. And in Christ, we now enter the very heaven of God and are seated with Christ in those heavenly places at the Father's right hand. That's Colossians. So we ought to thank God for the last Adam. He didn't leave humanity without the hope of redemption. He has purposed and set forth in scripture for his glory and for the hope of the church the last Adam. One is coming who is perfectly righteous, who is obedient, who fulfills all righteousness, who stands in the place, the propitiation between God and man and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is Jesus Christ, the last Adam. So this gives believers hope. So the believer that daily fights with depression and a cast down soul can say, Christ is redeeming all things, including my downcast soul. And he is bringing me to himself in heaven where my soul will never be downcast again. Hope in God and the last Adam. The child of God who just had his home, valuables and precious memories and keepsakes destroyed by a tornado can say, Christ is redeeming all things and my treasure is in Christ, and in the new heaven and new earth, I will never have to worry again about losing those things which are most valuable to me. And God himself will be my home and dwelling place. The Christian that's struggling with cancer can say, Christ is redeeming all things, and I will be given a new body 
imperishable, that will never cripple under the effects of sin. And the last Adam as the first fruits is the hope to which I look. Thank God for the last Adam, Jesus Christ. So we have hope as believers. This, this isn't something that should sort of stay aloof or be gray in our minds, but we should see it in scripture and hold to it as a promise. God has given the second Adam, the last Adam, who does what the first Adam did not do, could not do. Okay, so it's, it's a very, uh, it has practical implications, our understanding of God's purposes in redemption and sending Christ as the last Adam. Any, any thoughts on that before we transition? <clears throat> okay, so let's talk about the dominion of Christ. <clears throat> Again, this is an, an introduction to our study of Christology, um, specifically today dealing with the Old and New Testament uh, witness to Christ. So <clears throat> now the dominion of Christ. So the dominion given by the Lord to Adam over the rest of the created order is celebrated by David in Psalm 8, 3 to 8. Let's turn to Psalm 8 and, and read this. <clears throat> Psalm 8, verses 3 to 8. <clears throat> I guess we should probably read the whole... Well, no, we'll do three to eight. We'll do three to eight. <clears throat> Psalm 8, three to eight. Reads as such. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. <clears throat> Psalm 8, 3 to 8. So, like I, like I mentioned, I'm going to read this again because it's important to see this connection. The dominion given by the Lord to Adam over the rest of the created order is celebrated by David in Psalm 8, 3 to 8. Yet, and he, yet Hebrews 2 puts the actual carrying out of this redemption by fallen mankind into a redemptive Christocentric context. A redemptive Christocentric context. Let's take a look at Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. So keep Psalm 8 in your mind, and let's turn to Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. <clears throat> I'm going I'm to read that again. The dominion given by the Lord to Adam over the rest of the created order is celebrated by David in Psalm 8, 
yet Hebrews 2 puts the actual carrying out of this dominion into a redemptive Christocentric context. Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. <clears throat> now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What is he reading? Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who is for a little while, I'm sorry, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned him with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Christ carrying out that dominion, again, in a redemptive Christocentric, Christ-centered context. You see here the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament interpreting for us what was the Holy Spirit in the New Testament in Hebrews interpreting for us what was written in the Old Testament in Psalm 8 there. It is again Christ who accomplished for us what Adam failed to accomplish, what Israel failed to accomplish, and what mankind fails to accomplish. Sort of Side note here I wanted to mention, <clears throat> if we read the Old Testament and allow our biblical interpretation to stop there, then we miss the fuller revelation of God in the New Testament as it interprets the Old Testament for us. And we miss the aim and end to which the redemptive purposes of God find their consummation, namely in Christ. Okay, so huge to, to see. We're getting this picture, we're sharpening our lens of Christ as the fulfillment of all things. In him, we find God's word, God's promises fulfilled. <clears throat> okay? Are we on time? Uh, about 20 minutes, that's good. All right, so let's, let's transition to Christ as the image of God. Christ as the image of God. <clears throat> I don't think I got there yet. So the original creation by God of humankind is his own in, in his own image is taken up by the New Testament as really having been in the image of Christ, the Son of God, who in due season, through his redemptive purpose and work, does all that is necessary to restore us twisted ones. He's referring to our image here, us twisted ones, back into the beauty of the original divine image. We see that as we're going to read in a sec here in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. The image of God was not shattered when Adam sinned, but it was severely marred. Sanctification is the work of the Spirit of God renewing the cracked image of Christ in regenerate men and women. Let's take a look at, someone care to read for us Ephesians 4, 24? Thank you. And then Colossians 9, 10. We actually mem memorized Colossians 3, so this should be a reminder for some of us who attend Veritas. <laughs> so Colossians 3, 9, 9 to 10. Someone care to read that for us? Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have 
is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, considering Christ as the image of God. <clears throat> Christ is the Father's true and original image, whereas mankind are copies of the Son's likeness. Christ, then, is the only one who is able to restore the original image of God back to those in whom it was twisted by sin. John Calvin denies any substantive difference between image or likeness, but still teaches that Christ is the original image of which man is a copy. After referring to the image of God having been imparted to the newly created Adam, Calvin says, all men unanimously admit that Christ was even then the image of God. Hence, whatever excellence was engraved upon Adam derived from the fact that he approached the glory of his creator through the only begotten son. So man was created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 27. In him, the creator himself willed that his own glory be seen as in a mirror. Adam was advanced to this degree of honor thanks to the only begotten son. Calvin also teaches the restoration of the marred image in mankind in and through the redemption of Christ. <clears throat> there is no doubt that Adam, he says, when he fell from his state, was by this defection alienated from God. Therefore, even though we grant that God's image was not totally annihilated and destroyed in him, Yet it was so corrupted that whoever remains is frightfully deformed. Consequently, the beginning of our recovery of salvation is in the restoration which we obtain through Christ, who is also called the second Adam, for the reason that he restores us to the complete integrity. The end of regeneration is that Christ should reform us to God's image. Again, this is a, this is a, scriptural, a scriptural truth that we see. We're being formed into the image of Christ, reformed into the image which was lost or marred or cracked um, in our first father's sin. <clears throat> Regeneration is the restoration of that image. St. Thomas Aquinas, however, does not teach the original image of God as in Christ, but rather following St. Augustine, that the whole Trinity is the image. Much of the main thrust of the New Testament is on the divine intention to restore the image. So whether one takes it as uh, primarily Christ or as the Trinity as a whole, uh, James Dunn puts image of God in an eschatological context, right, in terms of Christ's appointment as the last Adam. He says, more significant is the eschatological thrust of the most closely related passages, the transformation of believers into the image of Christ or of God as the goal of the whole process of salvation, which climaxes in the resurrection. In this motif, the image which Christ bears or is, is that of the last Adam, Christ as fulfilling, fulfilling the original purpose God had in making man to be his image. Again, 
what Christ accomplishes over and above what Adam failed to accomplish. <clears throat> Christ as fulfilling the original purpose God had in making man to be his image. It is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot miss that. We can't get past that. Everything finds its end in Christ as the redeemer of all things. As we spoke before, prophesied of old, God's promises coming to pass. He did what he said he would do, and it's over and beyond our expectations, more than we can ask for or hope to, to have in Christ. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and as I was going through this, I just paused and I thought, for from him, to him, and through him are all things. Creation from the first Adam and on is for the purpose of understanding the last Adam and the redemption accomplished through him. Again, creation from the first Adam and on is for the purpose of understanding the last Adam and the redemption accomplished through him. <clears throat> and how much time? I'm closing here. I should be closing. Uh, we ought to strive to explain Christ from the scriptures as Christ explained himself from the scriptures, starting at the Old Testament and moving through the New. The incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, is not a New Testament concept. Before Adam and Eve ever were ever created from the dust, well, actually, before I go there, let me uh, stop and I, I want to ask sort of the question I asked earlier in, in a different way. Um, how is our understanding of uh, God's plan and purpose affected if we only understand Christ through the lens of the Old Testament? <clears throat> what do we miss? <clears throat> if we understand Christ solely through the lens of the Old Testament, how does that affect how we view God's purpose and plan. It's not <clears throat> Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. It's not fulfilled. That's right. right? The Old Testament leaves you Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. It leaves you hanging. Any other? Yeah, I felt all my life. 40 years. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on that? <clears throat> <clears throat> guys are so quiet this morning. <laughs> I'm going to pause there for a sec so you guys can think and I can get something to drink. <clears throat> right. Right. <clears throat> Right, absolutely. It's, it's a pretty clear picture of what Christ is not. I'm sorry? What? So the Old Testament paints like a really clear picture of what Christ is not. So you just have a whole bunch of examples huh. of the way that Christ isn't, uh, or the way that Christ uh, is to how man comes short to being Christ. So like I see. All of, every single right. Like right. Every example of the Old Testament is like, they couldn't do it with Christ. Right. But, but all we can see is just the example of what I see. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. So 
the kings fell short of being the king. The prophets fell short of the prophet, right? The priests fell short of the great high priest. Yeah, it does. You, you, you are, you see a lot of uh, failures with, man, where is the true king? You know, where's the prophet that is always faithful to proclaim God's word? Where's the priest that only has to sacrifice once and redemption is accomplished for men? Yeah, very, very good point. <clears throat> Any other thoughts on that? <clears throat> So question for you, before Adam and Eve were ever created from the dust, was Jesus the son of God? Yes. Was Jesus always eternal, has Jesus always eternally existed as the son? Yes. We confidently say yes. For Christ is the eternally begotten son of God. The triune God had planned to redeem the elect and the created order from eternity past, way before Adam's first sin was ever committed. And as Amanda spoke of earlier, that should give us great hope now even. He's not caught off guard by our sinfulness. Even as a Christian, he will bring you to the end. And that should give us great hope as we look to the return of Christ, our Lord, Savior, and Redeemer of our souls. We can stand steadfast in Christ and in the promises of God as they find their fulfillment and end in Christ. And that doesn't mean we sin that grace may abound. It means we trust in Christ and we know and we hold to the promises of Scripture that he who began a good work will bring it to completion in Christ. God is carrying the believer to the end. He's purposed to redeem us. He's purposed to restore this fallen created order, this, this cosmos and, this, and the chaos and the ruin because of sin. He wasn't, it, it didn't, Adam didn't sin and then the Lord sort of, he was looking over at something and you know, popped up and said, oh, man, I didn't see this coming. Adam, what are you doing? No, this is from eternity past, God purposing to redeem all things through Christ. So, again, that gives the Christian hope now and for the future as we look to Christ, the Redeemer of our souls. <clears throat> That's all I got on this segment in Christology. Any, any other thoughts? <clears throat> got about maybe, I don't know. Five, five minutes. What should also give us hope is the, are the words that Jesus said to his disciples. 